is faith. I would be for by his hand ye lead of me. Chris. Good evening. I tried a different slide because the other one was too dark. That one didn't help. I don't know if I've explained this well enough, but we've got a new projector, and we're splitting a signal from that projector to at least four or five different places. And every time you split it, the quality goes down. So something that we're working on, I'll just try to remember to put lighter colored slides up there. We're talking about Joel tonight, so if you have your Bibles, turn there. And I want to, as you're turning there, remind you that this week in our one-word study, the word is sin. I hope you're keeping up. So as you work through this week, through the devotionals, we'll come together next Sunday and talk about sin on Sunday morning, talk about Amos on Sunday night as we continue our series on the Minor Prophets. Tonight we're looking at Joel, and as I have said before, if we're going to be better Bible students, we need to read bigger chunks, and so we're going to be reading a lot of chunks tonight. So have your Bible ready, or your Bible app, and uh, we're going to go through Joel on kind of a speed reading class tonight. Um, I don't know if some of you know this or not, but back in 1967, you may, some of you have around then, you might remember, there was a gentleman by the name of Gene Tips who was involved in a very critical car accident that left him in a coma for eight years. He was from Seymour, Texas, so I don't know if any of y'all knew him, but this Gene Tips in this car accident suffered a major brain injury and was in a coma for eight years. Can you imagine being in a coma for eight years? The routine, daily routine, was that his parents would come in, they would set him up in a chair, they would try to feed him a little bit, sometimes having to manipulate his jaws in order for him to chew. He could swallow, and they would talk to him for a little bit and then put him back in bed. And this happened for eight years. Until one day, a nurse came in to give him some medicine, and he just woke up. And she, of course, was startled. He didn't know what was going on. His parents rushed into the room and were so ecstatic that he finally woke up. You think about what went on for the time that he had been out of it. They asked him, what's it like to be asleep for eight years? He goes, you know, it's kind of strange. The girl that I was dating now is married and has children. He said, you know, I, I went to sleep and I was 20. Now I'm 28, but I still feel 20. And he recalled just how odd it was to wake up after eight years of being in a coma. And as we read through the story of Joel, we are reading about God's wake-up call to a people who had been asleep, basically. They had been out of it spiritually. In fact, there are a lot of people, even in this day and age, that need a wake-up call, right? That maybe they've been unconscious spiritually for a while. That is exactly what Joel was sent on the scene to do. He was a prophet sent on the scene to be an alarm clock for God's people. In fact, the truth of the matter is God had already sent a calamity as sort of a wake-up call to begin with. He had sent a plague of locusts. And if you look in Joel chapter 1 and verse 1 and following, it reads like this. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, Hear this, O elders. And listen, all inhabitants in the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it. And let your sons tell their sons and their sons to the next generation. 
what the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake, drunkards, and weep and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. I think most of us know what a locust is, right? I mean, I think it closely resembles a grasshopper. And they can do a lot of damage. In fact, maybe some farmers in West Texas could tell you about the damage that locusts or grasshoppers can do. It was only a few years ago that uh, we had what seemed like a plague of grasshoppers. You remember that? I mean, they seem to be everywhere. Every so often, they seem to come up on the scene, and they're everywhere. But this was like nothing that these people had ever experienced before. You know, in 1915, there was a plague in Palestine and Syria that obscured the sun. It was so great. And people that witnessed it said that there were some 65 to 75,000 eggs laid in a single square meter of soil. And after the locusts would lay these eggs, they would fly away, and these, these locusts would then, uh, uh, I guess, hatch, if you will, within a few weeks, and they looked like large ants. They didn't fly yet, but they hopped around. They could, do, they could cover four to 600 feet per day, devouring all the vegetation in their path. They even molted. And in this stage, they had wings, but they still couldn't fly. They molted again. This time, they were grown adults, ready to fly, ready to wreak more havoc. And in the 1915 issue of National Geographic, John D. Whiting gave this description. He said, once entering a vineyard, the sprawling vines would, would in the shortest time be nothing but bare bark. When the daintier morsels were gone, the bark was eaten off the young topmost branches, which after exposure to the sun were bleached snow white. Then, seemingly out of malice, they would gnaw off the small limbs, perhaps to get at the pith within. They stripped every leaf, berry, and even the tender bark. This account of what Joel is giving here is what the people were dealing with in their day. You can see in Joel's account the various stages of the molting locusts, the gnawing locusts, the swarming locusts, the the stripping locust, the creeping locust. And by describing each stage of the locust, Joel is showing just how destructive the nature of these locusts were. It was utter destruction. In fact, John D. Whiting, from that same article in National Geographic, had this to say about Joel's description from the Bible. He said, We marvel how this ancient writer could have given so graphic and true a description of a devastation caused by locusts in such a condensed form. So, the book of Joel opens with a calamity. It opens with these locusts utterly destroying the land. And not only is the land devastated, the people are devastated as well. They lived off the land, so certainly they would be devastated. And nothing like this has happened before. And we see that in what we just read, because it reads, Has anything like this happened in your days or your father's days? This was the people's alarm clock. And Joel was sent on the scene following this calamity to use the locusts as a lesson. There was a lesson to be learned in the locusts. And Joel was going to point that out to them. 
Everything in their own little world was about to change. And so he's going to use this calamity as a tool. He calls on various people within the land to mourn with him. First, he calls on the elders. Why would you call on the elders? Well, because they're the leaders, right? And you would expect the leaders to lead in a time when everything was destroyed. It's easy to lead when things are good. You want leaders to step up when things are not so good. He also calls on the drunkards because they owned the vineyards and the vineyards were destroyed. Hopefully this got their attention, right? There would be no more wine. Then he calls on the farmers. There would be no harvest. Then he calls on the priest to lead the nation in mourning. And if you look at verse 13, it reads, Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament. O priest, wail. O ministers of the altar, come spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. And then, at the end of the chapter, Joel, who may have very well been a priest himself, leads his own prayer of mourning, and he says this. Verse 19, To you, O Lord, I cry, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Now, what typically happens after a catastrophe is that people unite, don't they? That's one wonderful thing about what we see after a natural disaster in our country and even in other parts of the world. You know, whether it's a hurricane or an earthquake or something, people tend to unite and rally around the victims and do whatever they can to meet their need. And so what Joel is looking at here is a people who are trying to bounce back, trying to stick together and unite in an effort to rebuild. And it's not just about rebuilding what they lost physically. It's about rebuilding a people. God often used calamity in order to bring people into compliance, didn't he? And certainly that is what is happening here. And he's using this plague of locusts as a precursor to the future. If you turn over to chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it reads like this. It says, blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there ever again after it the years of many generations. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. Skip down to verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride of her bridal chamber. Let the priest, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach. 
a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, where is their God? Again, we see what appears to be another wave of locusts. Only they are described in military terms. And they are bringing a destruction like no other. They are God's army sweeping in like a cavalry. And the sun is darkened and the earth quakes. And once again, God calls his people to repentance. And he does so with these words. He says, rend your hearts, not your garments. And what he means by that is, don't just give me a show. Don't act like you're repenting. You've got to truly repent here. Don't get out there and rip your sackcloth and act like you're doing something that's, that's uh, sorrowful. You better be truly sorrowful. And so the plague of locusts was a wake-up call, but it was also a dress rehearsal for something else that was to come, something bigger and far more destructive in the future. The day of the Lord was coming, and it would be a day that would include blessing and curse. It would be a blessing for all of those who turned and were faithful to God and did His will. It would be a curse for those who chose not to live at the center of God's will. There's another lesson in the locusts, and it is that God is not finished with His people. One thing that you're going to see over and over again in these lessons on the minor prophets is that there is calamity or destruction Often it is referred to as the day of the Lord when he brings destruction upon the people. Day of the Lord can also refer to the coming of Jesus, but that's not necessarily the context in these these letters from the minor prophets. What you're seeing is calamity, God bringing the people into compliance. There is a judgment, but then there's always a silver lining. There's always hope. And it may not exactly be for the people living in that day and time. In fact, It usually isn't, but for the people that is to come. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God bringing destruction upon his people for the purpose of waking them up. And then we see God prospering them because of their obedience. The the book of Judges illustrates this for us. It records like 300 years of a cycle of disobedience, calamity or destruction because of their disobedience, and then the people turning around and repenting and enjoying prosperity again. But every time they enjoyed prosperity, they went back to their old ways and they were disobedient. And so then God would bring destruction again. And it was this vicious cycle over and over. The day of the Lord is a reference to past events as well. When God saved his people and confronted the evil. However, the day of the Lord is also representative of a time in the future when God is going to defeat evil and save the world. And so that theme should be at the forefront when we're reading through this minor prophet's book here in Joel. I want you to notice verses 18 through 23. It says, Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. There's hope, right? The silver lining. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied and full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations, but I will remove the northern army far from you, and I will drive it into a parched and desolate land, and its vanguard into the eastern sea, and its rear guard into the western sea, and its stench will arise, and its foul smell will come up, for it has done great things. Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green, for the trees has borne its fruit. The fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. 
So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you the rain, the early and latter rain as before. Do you see us in this? We are blessed through Israel. Do you see us in this? We were blessed through the seed of Abraham. Most of the prophets point forward to the day of the Lord, a day in the future that will be both horrible and terrific. It'll be horrible for those people who choose to be disobedient to God, who choose to live apart from God. It will be a blessing. It will be glorious for those people who choose to live close to God in response to His will, obeying Him. It's a day when God will destroy His enemies and bless His children. And and we're not just talking about physical Israel. We're talking about all of us. Because the seed of Abraham, which is Jesus Christ, is the Messiah who paves the way for all of us to come into the kingdom. And so we see this theme throughout the Old Testament that the day of the Lord is coming, both blessing and judgment. But look with me at verses 28 and 29. It says, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. A time is coming, a day when God will pour out his spirit on both Jew and Gentile, both male and female, both, both slave and free man. Does that sound familiar? That's Galatians 3, isn't it? I mean, you read through Galatians 3, and it has a lot to say about our inheritance as the seed of Abraham. Look at verse 30 and following. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. That should sound familiar to you. The Israelites knew that this day was coming. They knew it. They knew that the Messiah was coming. They anticipated this day, this day that would be darkness for some. It would be a sad day for some. It would be a glorious day for those who were not the enemies of God. Joel describes it as a day in which all nations will be gathered into a valley of decision. That's chapter 3. They'll be gathered in this valley of decision, and God is declaring war on the nations that oppose his people. Notice verses 9 and following of Joel chapter 3. He says, proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. These nations are going to war against God. And they're going to be defeated. They don't stand a chance. In the process, they're going to be judged. And they'll be judged for how they have treated God's people. They will be judged for their evil. But God's people will be blessed. They will prosper. They will have all that they need. Look at verse 18 and following of Joel Joel chapter 3. It says, And in that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine. The hills will flow with milk. And all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. And a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste 
and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah, in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem for all generations. And I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. In this day, God's people are going to be more than taken care of. So when is this day? When is it going to come? You know? When is this day? When is it going to come? Okay, we'll turn to Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, as the Spirit of God is being poured out on the apostles on the day of Pentecost, as the Jews have gathered in Jerusalem for this festival, the people wondered what was going on. The apostles have to be drunk, right? I mean, they don't make any sense. And Peter says, no, nobody's drunk. What's happening is what Joel had prophesied about. What's happening is what Joel said would happen. Notice chapter 2 of Acts, starting in verse 17. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that it will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter's message was the last days are here. These are the last days. The days of the Messiah have come. God sent his son to show a better, more perfect way. And what did you people do to him? You killed him. You murdered the Son of God. And these people knew what Joel said. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. Surely they knew that because they were responsible for killing the Son of God, that that put them on the wrong side. There's going to be blessing, there's going to be curse, and they're not going to receive the blessing. So they knew what side they were on. They knew that it meant judgment for God's enemies. And so it became crystal clear in that moment that they had killed God's anointed. And that doesn't put them in good standing with God, obviously. It was a light bulb moment. It was an alarm clock moment. Though they considered themselves God's people, Peter points out to them that they had aligned themselves with God's enemies. And the days of blessing and curse are here. And you're not on the right side. Look at verse 40. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. They knew exactly what Peter meant. They were a part of that generation, that perverse generation. They were now a part of those who killed the prophets, who rebelled against God and his people. They were not a part of the chosen. They were the enemy. And Peter says, save yourself. There's still hope. There is a silver lining. There's still an opportunity for redemption. Peter says, here's how you get it. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the message that God had given the minor prophets time and time again is that 
I'm not done with you. I'm not done with you. There's still hope as long as you're alive. He desires to pour out his blessing. You don't have to be an enemy of God. And Peter's audience found themselves in the valley of decision. And some 3,000 made the right decision, didn't they? At least on that day. You see where all this is going? I mean, here we are. We are the remnant, as we'll find out when we go through this series. We're the remnant. We're the seed of Abraham. We are the heirs according to promise. And maybe some of you tonight are sitting here in the valley of decision. Those of you who are children of God because you have repented and been baptized, received the gift of the Holy Spirit, you know there is blessing by being in the kingdom. You are experiencing blessings every day, if nothing more than the fact that you get to call God Father. But there's other spiritual blessings you enjoy in the church, just in your daily life. But if you are not a child of God, you are on the wrong side. I mean, I don't mean to be harsh, it's just the truth. The way the Bible presents it is you are either going to receive blessing or curse, or you are either a child of His or you're an enemy of His. And I don't think any of us want to be an enemy of God, right? Surely not. If you're in a valley of decision this evening, make the right decision. Don't be on the wrong side of God. Understand that there's hope. That's why I love the message of the minor prophets. No matter how bad it gets, it's going to get better. But you're going to have to have faith. You're going to have to trust in me, and you're going to have to change your evil ways. And if you need to make a change tonight, then do that. Joel's message is a message for us as well. What's our decision going to be? Clyde's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you tonight in some way, let us. But don't leave here without being right with God. Come now as we stand and as we sing. Oh, most persuaded.